Good morning. My name is Conrad Morse, and I serve on the Elder Council here at FBC. Today we'll be reading from Scripture in Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had just said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Greg. I'm also one of the pastors here at FBC. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 50 this morning, a portion of which Conrad read this morning. Let's begin by asking God for his help in prayer. God, we thank you for the kindness you have shown us in Jesus, and we pray that as we spend some time in your word this morning, God, you would move our hearts to worship. You would bring us to a place of confession and repentance. You would give us the joy of faith, hope in Christ, forgiveness of sins, and a perspective, God, that connects us with eternity in the future. So, God, we thank you for your word and pray that we would uh, be changed by it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, one bit of info unrelated to this passage this morning. Uh, Bob Tucker passed away uh, this last week. Uh, Berta's here uh, this morning, and uh, Berta and her whole family wanted to make sure you are aware that all of you are welcome to Bob's memorial service. That'll be July 2nd here in the worship center at 11 a.m. I will remind you uh, as we get a little bit closer to that, I'll be praying for Berta and their whole family as they mourn uh, Bob's home going, but also as we experience the joy of knowing he's with Jesus. And uh, so if you're able to attend and encourage Berta and her whole family on July 2nd at 11 a.m., we'll be here to worship Jesus by remembering Bob that morning. The title of the uh, message today is The Problem with Jesus. The Problem with Jesus. And I feel like I should clarify that because after having made that title, I feel like maybe that might, you might find that offensive. And uh, now I need to be clear. I, I don't normally care whether uh, you're offended or not. 
but I wanted to make sure in this case that you aren't offended for the wrong reasons, maybe is the nice way of saying it. Uh, There isn't a problem with Jesus. We're not going to be delving into some kind of uh, academic critical viewpoint of of something is wrong with Jesus. What we want to recognize with that statement is this. When we encounter Jesus, we experience, or experience if you're actually encountering Jesus of the Bible, a bit of tension, frustration, a difficulty. There are things about Jesus that are extraordinarily difficult for us to really get our heads around, and and if we're honest, we might say we may not even like some things about Jesus. It doesn't reveal anything wrong with Jesus. What we want to recognize, it reveals something that's going on in us uh, that needs to be addressed. The, The problem is not really with Jesus, I need to make clear. The problem lies with us. Jesus here in this passage is going to be making very clear what his plan is. He's got a plan. He's going to make it clear to the disciples what the plan is and how he's going to execute that plan. And the disciples are resistant to it. And what I want us to also recognize is we also are resistant to the plan of Jesus and how he's working out his plan. And and the reason that's really important to do is because if we can recognize how we are resistant to how Jesus is working... It gives us a better opportunity to really experience him more with more clarity because we can say, I need to repent. There's something going on in me that is opposed to the work that Jesus uh, wants to do in us. Resistance to Jesus and his work reveals something about our condition and rebe- reveals something about the rebellion that's going on in our lives. So we're going to look at two problems we have, I should say maybe better, Two problems we have with Jesus. First problem, trusting Jesus means following him into suffering. First problem with Jesus, trusting him means following him into something. Now, the passage Conrad read is a passage, uh, if it's highlighted in your Bible, maybe it's called the Transfiguration, this time where uh, three of the disciples went with Jesus up on a mountain, and they saw him in his glory with Moses and Elijah. This is probably the pinnacle of what we might describe as a mountaintop experience. Maybe you've described an experience you have had at camp or a conference or something like this as a, a mountaintop experience. And I don't know what kind of revival occurred in your heart when you were at camp or a conference. It probably wasn't Jesus and Elijah and Moses hanging out. This is sort of the uh, mountaintop experience of all mountaintop experiences. The glory of God revealed in uh, current time along with these sort of heroically viewed people of Moses and Elijah. And, and who doesn't want that experience? Who doesn't, who doesn't want to have that experience where you experience the glory of God in, in, your, in your presence where you can see it and feel it? Who, who wouldn't want to experience? It's, it's breathtaking. Uh, the problem is how we get to that place is not where we want to go. Um, one mountain that's relatively famous is Mount Everest. Has everybody heard of Mount Everest? Good. Um, if not, you'll Google it while I'm talking. So it's, uh, it's a pretty tall mountain, and a lot of people have, have ventured to get to the summit of Mount Everest, and there's quite a bit of glory associated with summiting Mount Everest. Not everybody can do it. Uh, number one, it costs a lot of money, upwards of $100,000 to take a guided uh, hike up uh, Mount Everest. Secondly, there's the training. My understanding is you have to be in uh, relatively good condition 
Uh, might have to mix in a walk or two during the week to kind of get yourself fit uh, for Mount Everest. Um, there's also the training. There's, I mean, it's serious mountaineering. You're not just walking up a path. You've got to be able to use mountaineering gear, navigating uh, several different types of terrain. Uh, not only that, you have to acclimatize to the altitude. Uh, apparently, the, the higher you get, the less oxygen there is. And uh, so as you go up onto the mountain, you have to get used to, your body has to get used to the lower oxygen conditions. So I don't know if you knew this, but uh, you're about to find out because I'm going to tell you. Uh, from the time you get into uh, the area of, of Mount Everest to when you might summit, it takes two months. You've got to hike up to the various base camps. There's more than one base camp, apparently. You would think there's one base camp. There's many. And then, so there's many camps, and you have to hike up and get used to it and then go back down and get unused to it and then hike back up, and you've got to go back and forth and back and forth, get the oxygen all the way it is. And it takes two months, and then finally, on one night, you're going to get up in the middle of the night, and hopefully the weather's going to work for you, and you're going to climb up, stand on the, mount, on the summit for five minutes, maybe ten minutes if there's uh, not much of a line, and then leave. So this is the glory, ten minutes of glory, Two months of camping. And, and that's, the, the, that, that's the problem we have with Jesus, too, is we want the glory, we don't want the two months of camping. And what Jesus is about to make known to his disciples is glory is the destination, but the journey to it is going to involve some hardship and some struggle. We have to trust Jesus we have to rely on what God is doing in our lives, even though what God is doing in our lives is going to involve difficulty and suffering. We don't want to have suffering any more than anybody else, but that's a, a, not merely a part of it. It is, it is a, a, a function of the glory we are going to experience is participating in the suffering of Jesus in our, in our life. This is the way to glory is the path of difficulty with Jesus, and we have to acknowledge we would prefer not to have difficulty. Am I right on that or am I wrong? Is there somebody here? No, actually, I prefer suffering. That would be, that's fantastic. Now, the, what we need to recognize, it's, it's better just to say it out loud. I don't like suffering, and when bad things are happening, it feels like something's wrong. Something's wrong with God, something's wrong with me, something's wrong with both. And what Jesus is saying, no, that's the road to glory, is going to involve difficulty. And for us, it's, it, we should acknowledge that trusting Jesus means following him to his glory, which also means we're going to follow him and participate in his suffering. Look at uh, verses 28 through 36, this transfiguration. Peter, James, and John went up on the mountain with Jesus. Jesus prayed. They slept. That's what they did. It seems like they do this all the time. Jesus, during this time of prayer, it says he, uh, his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. He, he appeared in his glory. If you want a real detailed description maybe of what this was similar to, read the description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. Do that on your own time. We don't have time for it now. But there's Jesus in his glory, and he's talking with Moses and Elijah having a conversation with Moses and Elijah. And they also appeared in glory, meaning they didn't look like old Moses and Elijah. They were Moses and Elijah uh, along with Jesus experiencing this uh, glory. In verse 32, Peter and those who were with him, James and John, 
they were heavy with sleep, but then they became fully awake when the lights came on. You know, they're like drifting off, and then suddenly it's terribly embarrassing. You know, nothing is worse. All of us have fallen asleep in church from time to time. Some are doing it now. (laughs) And every now and then you wake up at an inopportune time, but it's really bad when you wake up and Jesus is sitting there. It's like, really? Yeah, that's what happens here. They fall asleep, and they sort of come to, and Jesus is standing there in, in all of his glory. And he's standing there with Moses, and he's standing there with Elijah, and these were such critically important people in the life of Israel and the work that God was doing to redeem sinners. I want to point out uh, two passages which help us understand the importance of uh, Moses and Elijah. One is Deuteronomy 18.15. We looked at it briefly last week as well. Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses is saying by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He will raise up a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So because of this prophecy from Moses... People connected a a huge amount of weight to this prophet that was to come. The assumption would be, once this prophet shows up, the day of the Lord is very near. The end is coming. When this prophet shows up, the day of the Lord is very near. And so now you've got Moses standing with Jesus. So what are Peter, James, and John going to naturally assume? Uh, Jesus is that prophet. Okay, that makes perfect sense. Moses is standing here. He predicted the prophet that's to come. Jesus is standing here. So Jesus is that prophet. So what does that mean? The day of the Lord is here. We're almost done. We're ready to punch out. We're going to go to our big mansion. We're going to play football or whatever you do, right? So that's exciting. What about Elijah? Look at Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you... Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, we've already recognized in the book of Luke that John the Baptist fulfilled this prophecy as making way uh, the way of the Lord. The prophet Elijah to come was, all, was John the Baptist fulfilling that prophecy. But here's Peter, James, and John on the mountain with Elijah. Not a guy fulfilling the prophecy of Elijah, but Elijah himself. So you've got Moses predicting the prophet to come. You've got Elijah predicting the day of the Lord. You've got Jesus, all of them in their glory. And what are these guys thinking? It's done. It's over. It's on. We win. High fives. Let's do this. And that's not exactly what's happening. Jesus is saying, here's where uh, we're going. We're going to glory. We're going to the day of the Lord. But you've got to understand the pathway between here and there. Let's look at what uh, Peter says. That's always entertaining, isn't it? Master, it's good that we are here. You mean, Peter, it's good that we're awake. Welcome to the party. Let's make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and then Luke fills in for us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Peter didn't have a clue what he's talking about. So what Peter's doing here, he's saying, let's, let's build some tents. Likely he's referring to the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was fantastic. It was a great celebration in the life of the people of Israel. Once a year, uh, the men would travel to Jerusalem, and they would build temporary shelters, and they would live in them 
while they would celebrate. And it was intended to remind them that at one point in their history, they lived in tents in the wilderness. So now in the promised land, for a a week, they would live in tents, temporary shelters, to remind them that God took care of all of their needs in the wilderness, and it was a great party. Because they're celebrating, they don't live in tents anymore by living in tents. And why is it great to live in a tent? Because you know at the end of the week, you go home. You only have to live in a tent for a week. And so he says, let's celebrate this great celebration. We're almost home. The wilderness is over. Let's build a tent for Moses. Let's build a tent for Elijah. Let's build a tent for Jesus. And in that moment, a cloud descends. It seems pretty clear in verse 34 that God the Father responds to Peter's comment. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. That's when a guy goes, oh, man, I should have kept my mouth shut. Jesus, or God says this about his son, Jesus, God in the flesh. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. What's he saying there? There's three guys on that mountain. Only one of them matters. Peter, you made a mistake. Moses, yeah, he's great. Elijah, yeah, Mr. Fancy Pants. They are nothing. God is standing there. Do not make the mistake, Peter, of thinking Jesus is just another in a line of prophets. This is Jesus, God in the flesh, the creator, the sustainer of all that is. Worship him. You don't build a temporary shelter for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. If you do, you build a temple for Jesus, not a tent. You make it clear that he's something wholly other than. And Peter made a grave error in thinking Jesus was just another in a long line of miraculous prophets. The father says, no, this is my son. Listen to him. After the voice had spoken, all of a sudden Jesus was alone. Moses and Elijah were gone. And Jesus told them to keep this to themselves until he went to the Father in heaven. This is a very similar to Moses going up onto the mountain in Mount Sinai. You can read all about that in Exodus. Moses goes up onto the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. The difference between this and Moses going up on Mount Sinai. When Moses went up on Mount Sinai, Moses came down. In this story, Jesus comes down. God comes down and he's with his people. The day of the Lord is here. That's what we should understand from this transfiguration. The day of the Lord is here. The end is here. It's happening. And now the disciples have to confront the, the conflict in their heart. If the day of the Lord is here, why isn't everything working out? Because Jesus and the disciples are going to walk down off of the mountain and suffering is yet to come. And the disciples are going to have to Grapple with the reality that to walk into glory with Jesus means to walk a path of difficulty. Look what greets them when they get to the bottom of the mountain, verses 37 through 43. The next day, they got down to the bottom of the mountain, and a great crowd gathered around, and they met him. And a guy comes up to Jesus, and this is what he said, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He's my only child, and behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and, and shatters him, and, and it'll hardly leave him. I, I begged your disciples to cast it out. They couldn't. Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long 
Am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. This would have been a bizarre scene. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy, and he gave him back to his father, and everybody was astonished at the majesty of God. So here's Peter, James, and John up on the mountain with Jesus, and they don't want to come down off that mountain. And what's happening down off of that mountain? Evil spirits are still tormenting little kids. The world is still broken. There is still sin to be dealt with. There is still a devil to be cast aside. There is still a mission of redemption to be done. Peter, James, and John, they want to build tents and stay on the mountaintop of glory and not experience all that stuff down there in the real world. And Jesus says, no, that's where the path of glory is, is to go off of this mountain and go down and engage with the realities that this world is still filled with brokenness and evil. There's still evil, there's still demons, and the disciples are still struggling. Look at verse 41. O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Who is Jesus talking to there? Yeah, we could argue with one another about it. And I always say it's fine to argue with me because you're welcome to be wrong. And it could be a number of things. At minimum, he's, t- he's talking to his disciples. Why, what, why is he talking to his disciples? Why is that the case? Because they didn't cast out the demon. What's the problem? Is it because they didn't have authority to cast out demons? No, of course they did. Of course they did. The problem was, in this moment, for whatever reason, the disciples didn't recognize the power of God in them. They didn't recognize the reality of what he was doing. Something was going wrong inside of them in relationship to God, and as a result, they were unable to properly deal with this evil spirit. And Jesus is understanding, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to be raised from the dead, and then I'm going to glory. There's not much time here, guys. We need to get this figured out. The disciples are still struggling. They're faithless. What does it mean to be faithless? Oh, faithless and twisted generation. Faithlessness means a lack of trust. Here's the problem with faith. Two things that are a problem with faith. Now, there are lots of problems with faith, but here are the two reasons we struggle with faith. Number one, if I have to trust somebody, it means I can't do it on my own. And when it comes right down to it, as much as we like talking about trusting God, we would rather not need to. And it's a problem for us. Why do I have to trust God? I don't want to have to depend on God. That's faithlessness. I don't want to have to trust God. I want to be able to do it on my own. How do I know that's the case? Because that's what Adam and Eve did. They saw in the forbidden fruit If I can eat this, I'm going to have enough knowledge and I'm going to have enough food. I won't need God anymore. So we prefer not to trust God. Second thing, if I'm trusting God and he is the power doing work in my life, how much credit do I get? None. And I don't like that either. So there's two problems. Number one, I want to be independent from God. I don't want to have to rely on him. Secondly, I want the glory for the important things that happen in my life. The result is faithlessness. A conscious decision or an unconscious decision to say is really annoying to have to rely on God. I wish I didn't have to. And this is what he is saying to the disciples. How long am I going to be able to bear with you? 
Not only are they faithless, it says here they are twisted. They're, they're all turned around on what their relationship with God ought to be. This is a, a desire to, to have autonomy and independence from God. We want God to be available to us when necessary, but for the most part, for him to mind his business. That's what the, the, the human condition is. I want God to show up when, it, when he's necessary, certainly when the car won't start or somebody gets sick or the wrong person gets elected. I want God to be available to do my bidding. But for the most part, what I really need God to do is mind his own business. In other words, to leave me alone. And what, and what Jesus is saying is that is, that's twisted. This faithlessness and this desire to have independence from God where he's just merely available when, when I deem he's necessary in my life. What Jesus is calling for in the lives of his disciples is people who trust him and follow him on the daily. That's what he's looking for. A daily trust in Jesus and a daily followership of Jesus, whatever he may lead us into, whether it's a day of glory or a day of great difficulty. And Jesus is saying, I am the one who wants to be the power in your life, just like he was in this situation where he cast out this demon. Just in case there were any questions of what his plan is, let's look at verses 43 through 45. Let me read them. While they were all marveling at everything he was doing, that is Jesus, Jesus said this to his disciples. I love this about Jesus. Just when everybody wants to throw a party, he throws cold water on the whole thing. Let these words sink into your ears. That is always bad when Jesus starts what he's about to say with, pay attention, get this in your thick skulls. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of of men. So Jesus has just been glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah. The disciples made it quite clear they want the end to come now. They don't want to go through all this suffering. Jesus makes it quite clear it's not time for the end to come because evil hasn't been dealt with yet. And the disciples are still faithless and twisted. And now he makes plain the plan. You thought the plan on that mountain was glory. It is. And it goes through a cross. That's the plan. The plan is glory. The path to glory goes through a cross. He says here, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. He's going to be handed over to his enemies. They are going to kill him, and he is going to raise from the dead. That is the plan. A fundamental element of Jesus' glory is his suffering to pay for sin for us. You can write down, we're not going to go there, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Many of you have it memorized. We have to understand something that's crystal clear about Jesus' nature. He is glorified to be humiliated to be glorified. So the trajectory of Jesus' glory starts with glory in heaven. He descends into humiliation and dies for sinners he is raised and ascends to glory. You see the trajectory there? Glory, humiliation, glory. That trajectory, that plan is fundamental to who he is. He's been showing us this pattern all throughout Scripture. I'll give you two examples. This is off script, so I may get this wrong. Joseph. Anybody heard of Joseph? 
in a brightly colored coat. Joseph was the favorite of the father. Then what happened to Joseph? Humiliated. A slave in Egypt. And then what happens to Joseph? Glorified. Same trajectory. Starts in glory, humiliated, glorified. One other guy, Job. How's he start? Rich on rich. He's real rich. Got lots of camels, lots of goats. Apparently that's rich, you know. If I go to my ATM and look at my balance and it tells me I got 20 camels, we got a problem. You know, that's what I could do with 20 camels. So uh, he's really rich, got lots of kids, lots of stuff. What happens to him? It's, it's gone. Uh, reduced into complete humiliation and suffering. Then what happens at the end? Glory. So that's the way God is working. He's showing us his pattern. The way redemption comes is the one who has glory is humiliated and then has his glory. And so the disciples stand on the glory of the Mount of Transfiguration. What do they want to do? They want to go over that valley of humiliation straight to glory. That's what they want to do. They, and Jesus said, no, 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 we're going down off the mountain. We're going to deal with demons. We're going to deal with death. We're going to deal with injustice, all of that stuff. And then glory comes. That's the whole plan. That's a problem for us. Because Jesus is the Messiah in the flesh, and he says, I am going to dance, die at the hands of people who are currently amazed by me. The path to glory is suffering. It's not what it's expected, and it's not what we want. We want to trust Jesus, experience a great amount of glory in that trusting, and then skip to heaven. And what is the plan? What's always been the plan? The glory of Christ saves us from our sin, and then we walk that path with him. We come down off that Mount of Transfiguration, walk through that valley of suffering, and a day will come when we will experience his glory most fully, but that day isn't today. That day is yet to come. Maybe I could put it this way. The problem we have with Jesus is that we have to follow him into suffering is this. Our terms for what it means to trust Jesus are not the same as what Jesus thinks it means for us to trust Jesus. I can say it this way, maybe. Well, I'm going to say it this way. Jesus simply wants day in and day out trusting. A routine of wake up in the morning, the reason I am breathing is because I have a functioning diaphragm? No. Jesus gave me another breath. The reason I got a roof over my head is because I worked out the deals to get a house? No, because Jesus gave me a house to live in. The reason I got clothes on my back is because I didn't have money to go buy clothes? No. that's not. So it's a routine, day in and day out. Whatever is, is because of Jesus. Trusting and walking with him on a path to glory. I mean, some days we experience great glory here. We experience the fruitfulness of a life dedicated to Christ, and some days that's great joy and brings great return. And other days it brings great difficulty. Other days it brings great conflict, relational brokenness. Questions of what God is up to and dealing with the brokenness of life, the question is, am I going to trust Jesus again and still today. If you relegate your faith in Christ to a moment in your past where you stood at a stage at a crusade or somebody led you to Jesus, we need to recognize that is a moment of faith where salvation occurs, but we live in faith day in and day out. The routine, day in, 
day out trusting Jesus. We, we grasp that a little more clearly when we're able to recognize at least a little bit we would prefer not to. What Jesus wants in us is a waking up in the morning, routine, day in and day out, dependency on him. The problem with Jesus is trusting him means participating with him in his suffering. All right, let's continue on. We still have 700 verses to go. Actually, no, we've covered most of it, 46 to 50, the problem with Jesus. Uh, Now, there was a a famous adventurer. His uh, name was Ernest Shackleton. Who's heard of this guy? Yeah, uh, and he went down to uh, Antarctica and wrecked a boat. Apparently, that makes you famous. I would think the famous guy is the guy who didn't sink a boat. But, you know, what do I know? I never did. But anyway, uh, it, it, it's probably an urban myth, but anyway, an advertisement to recruit uh, Shackleton, uh, wanted to recruit men for this journey to the Antarctic to wreck his boat. Now, the plan wasn't to wreck the boat, but that's what ended up happening. I don't want to give the end away, but the boat sank. Um, the ad said something like this, if you're looking for uh, lots of hazards, really no pay, a lot of cold, a lot of darkness, a lot of danger, really low uh, probability of returning safely, uh, however great honor if succeed, then sign up here. And of course the rumor is that he had so many people sign up that uh, he, he had to turn most people away. So here's the thing, some of us, I'm, I'm up here saying, hey, walking with Jesus is, is nothing but suffering. And some of you, I know, I know what some of you are like. Not all of you. I know what some of you are like, oh, yes, sign me up. That's right. I'm, I'm the Navy SEAL of Jesus following. If, if there is going to be suffering, I want to be the best at it. I want, I want to get all the suffering badges. That's what you're say. Because some of us are, are sort of achievers. Like, okay, following Jesus with, is, in a, is a suffering deal? Fine. I'm going to get the suffering with Jesus merit badge when I get to heaven. And mine's going to be the biggest merit badge anybody else has got. So here's the next problem with Jesus. Are you ready? There is no VIP section in his kingdom. There is no awesome sauce sufferer award in his kingdom. And this is what Jesus is about to make clear to his disciples. Problem with Jesus, there is no VIP section in his kingdom. Back to Mount Everest, just for a minute. A friend of mine went to Nepal. He was teaching there at a seminary temporarily. And uh, so he spent several weeks in uh, Nepal, and he had, uh, had a day off, and uh, so they decided to do some sightseeing. So he and, and some of the other guest lecturers at this seminary uh, booked a charter flight to fly over Mount Everest. Now, I think this is hilarious. I, just, I don't know if he could see anybody on the summit, but here's, here's the thing. As you're flying over Mount Everest, you see these little dots of people standing on the summit. They've been camping for two months. And you got up that morning out of a warm bed, had a nice breakfast, got on an airplane. About an hour later, you're flying over the summit. Hey, good luck hiking down. That afternoon, you're having lunch in the city. So which one is better? Who is better at summiting Mount Everest? My friend who booked a charter plane and flew over the summit or the little dots on the mountain that spent two months hiking up that mountain? Who, who's better? Well, it depends on how you want to judge it, isn't it? I mean, if you're a mountaineer person, you know, a purist would never fly. If I, were, if I were flying near Mount Everest, I would avert my eyes. The only ones who should see the summit are those who have properly climbed it. And then those who are climbing it, they're going, oh, you use oxygen, pansy. So, so who is better? Who's the higher ranking 
Everest seer. Well, the, my friend would say, I've seen the summit. I've seen, in fact, I've seen more of the mountain than most hikers have seen, and I did it in the morning. I don't see the downside. And what Jesus is going to make clear to his disciples is this. There's no VIP section in the kingdom. And, and how we would like to evaluate who the VIPs are is always going to be wrong. We want to know in any given situation, where do we fit in the hierarchy? And if Jesus is going from glory to suffering to glory, we want to figure out how do we fit and make sure that we're really important in that hierarchy. And what Jesus is going to say is there isn't one. There isn't one. We want to know where the in crowd is, and Jesus is going to say, all are in. Let me read verses 46 through 50. An argument arose among them, that is, disciples, as to which of them was the greatest. Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is greatest. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. And Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. There's no VIP section in his kingdom, and we see here in verse 46 an argument has broken out among these disciples about who is the greatest. There is a kingdom coming. There will be seats of honor. And Jesus wants them to understand this kingdom works different than most kingdoms. He understands how they're thinking, and he wants them to know they are thinking wrongly. I want to read another section of Scripture. It's in Matthew chapter 20, uh, eight verses. I think it will be up on the screen. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, who is that? James and John. They came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. I want my sons to be in the VIP section, behind the velvet ropes. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? What is that? What's the cup? Suffering. They said to him, we are able. We want the suffering merit badge. He said to them, bad news, you will in fact drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and on my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers that they thought of at first. Jesus called them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is saying here, the greatest is the one who serves the most lowly. There is a kingdom coming. There are seats of honor, but this kingdom works differently. 
honor is experienced through humble service. Glory is experienced through lowly service. And here back in Luke chapter 9 when Hebrews says, whoever receives this child in me, uh, in my name, receives me. What he is telling us is the ones you serve are, are the ones who don't matter to everyone else. So what Jesus is saying is glory in this kingdom is found by serving most uh, powerfully those who matter least. Because in this culture, the children really don't matter that much. And Jesus is saying, I want you to ex- extend yourself, ex- uh, expend your energy serving in humble ways those who would be cast aside. We all love it when we serve or do something and it's noticed and it's helpful and it's effective and maybe even recognized a little bit. And Jesus is, is not saying that's wrong per se, but what he is saying is glory in the kingdom of God is experienced when we humble ourselves and serve those who for most would say that that doesn't matter. Why are you doing that? That's, that's insignificant. What's the point? Jesus is saying that's where glory is found. Because remember, Jesus left glory and humbled himself to die for sinners. So Jesus is merely asking us to participate in what he's already doing. Greatness is experienced. Greatness is accomplished. Greatness is lived out in our life because Jesus is the greatest when, when we serve the way in which he serves minimally, this requires that believers should be really, really good at affirming and recognizing and valuing people in our culture that don't matter. That should be a minimal value of Christians, Jesus is saying. A minimal way we serve is to ensure that relationally, anybody connected with a body of believers like this experiences value, not when earned, but because Jesus died for them. There should be no hierarchy in a, in, a, in a body of believers other than Jesus is king of all, and then there's everybody else. And value is established not by who's the best at knowing their Bible or finding verses in the Bible or who's the smartest in the room or the wealthiest in the room or the most polite, but value is determined by where Jesus is, and Jesus exists in the life of all who believe. Jesus is whoever receives this child. This isn't merely, uh, yeah, there's a place for you and we won't kick you out. This is a, a, a reference of hospitality, a receiving in of someone who brings nothing to the table. If a, a local body of believers cannot be marked with receiving holy someone who brings nothing to the table, we, we completely miss what greatness means in the kingdom of God. Greatness is serving those who don't matter because Jesus says all of them are great in my eyes. Look at verse 49 briefly. John said, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. Uh, Let me just remind you, if you're in your copy of Scripture, look up at verse 40 real quick on this one. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't. Boy, that's, that kind of stings. Jealous much, John? Couldn't cast out a demon. So we see a guy casting out a demon, and what do you say? 
Well, if I don't get to cast out demons, you don't get to cast out demons. Because I was on the Mount of Transfiguration. I saw glowy Jesus, glowy Moses, glowy Elijah. So you simmer down in your demon casting out, leave that to the big boys. Leave that to the sons of thunder. Jesus uh, will have none of it. Jesus, don't stop him. If they're not against you, they're for you. This is John demonstrating what people do. This is the elites wanting everybody to fall in line. The disciples saying, we do cool stuff. Other people watch and let, remind us how great we are. The disciples here want a kingdom where non-awesome people acknowledge the awesome people. And before we throw John under the bus, we need to recognize this is normal. This is human nature. We want a kingdom of God where everybody will finally recognize how great I am for the kingdom of God. And you're saying how great you are for the kingdom of God. If only the people around me would recognize how devoted I am, how knowledgeable I am. If only people would put my name up on a wall and recognize my achievements. Jesus said there's no room for that. If if Jesus wants to use a no-name nobody to cast out demons, Jesus is going to use a no-name nobody to cast out demons. And as I've read my Bible a little bit here and there, Jesus is really into using no-names nobodies. That's what he's into. That's his hobby. That's what he does on the weekends, is uses people who don't matter to bring glory to himself because he's awesome that way. Jesus' kingdom is different. The power to live in the kingdom of God comes from Jesus, and those who trust him will experience his power. The weak become strong, and there is no monopoly on doing the work of God for the glory of Jesus Christ in his kingdom. There are not the haves and the have-nots. There are not the VIPs and the not-VIPs or the elites and the not-elites. There are simply those with the Spirit of God called to bring glory to Christ by walking with him in suffering. The problem with Jesus is trusting him means following him into suffering. And secondly, there is no VIP section in his kingdom. A couple of ideas, and then we'll close. One question I had for you is this. Are you surprised where your life with Jesus has taken you? You believe in Jesus, and you kind of map out where life is going to go. And uh, has anybody had it go the way they wanted? I don't know. If you did, write a book, I guess. We'd buy it. You say, I, I trusted Jesus, and I sort of expected to go here, and that God plan got annihilated, and now I'm over here, and now the question is, did I leave or did Jesus? What's wrong? Everybody is in that position. The problem is we set up this expectation that when I meet Jesus on the mountaintop of glory, that means we're just going to skip to the next mountaintop of glory, and we don't want to walk that path of suffering with him. And the great comfort there is for those of us who are really having a hard go of it right now is this. There isn't anything wrong. That's where Jesus takes us. I'm not saying you wanted it. I'm not saying I wanted it. But what's great to know is when we're walking the path of difficulty with Jesus, Jesus has already been there. And he's walking us through that, and we know where that path goes. It goes to glory. So Keep walking with him, and we'll experience his glory one day. Okay, second thing I want to mention. I've only got 10. <clears throat> One of the prominent themes we see throughout the Old Testament, this is especially related to faith, is this. The people of Israel wanted God to provide enough so they wouldn't need God anymore. 
people of Israel constantly wanted God to provide enough so that they wouldn't need God anymore. So one of the challenges we face as believers in Christ is we want to finally get to that place where we have, uh, have enough stuff or enough faith or enough uh, whatever it is in your mind where, where God is uh, he's not a necessary equation in my existence. He's great. He adds a little spice to my life, a little bit of something to do on a Sunday morning. But, but God doesn't have to be for me to be okay. What we need to recognize as people who are following Jesus is the best place to be is in a place where if I don't have Jesus, I'm ruined. That's the best place to be. There's two things that can happen to us. One, we can find us in that place of real difficulty, and it's, it's, Jesus, if you're not here with me, I'm not going to make it. And it's, it's hard, but it's a, spiritually, it's a fantastic blessing. And it, some of you don't believe me, I can tell. But if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. It's really, really hard, and you wake up every morning, Jesus, if you don't show up today, I'm not going to make it. While it's difficult, spiritually, it's fantastic. On the other hand, sometimes God pours out his blessing on us. And we wake up in the morning and we don't have to wonder if we're going to make it. We need to be in that same place spiritually, though. Lord, you've, you've got to help me spiritually today because you've been so kind to me. I don't feel like I need you today. Help me, God. Show me how much I need you to make it through today, even though you've taken care of all of the needs I I have. We want to learn as believers what it looks like to walk each day trusting Jesus like it's our last day, whether it's a good day or a bad day, because that's really the best place for us to be. Okay, finally, this on VIPs. Comparison is deadly in the body of Christ. Comparison kills. You've spent your whole Christian life and you've reached the top of Mount Everest, you've clawed your way through suffering no one can describe, and you've memorized whole chapters of the Bible, if not books. You've said no to sins other people find enjoyable on the weekends. You've done all kinds of stuff nobody knows about. And then some Yahoo flies over Everest in a plane. <laughs> drives you bonkers. Comparison kills. It's daily. He just drives you nuts. How could God be blessing that guy? He doesn't say no to the sins I say no to couple of things on mountains. We're going to end with mountains. First of all, who said Mount, Mount Everest was the highest mountain? Some debate. Yeah, there's a mountain in Ecuador. If you want to measure from the middle of the earth, the mountain in Ecuador is farthest from the center of the earth because it's on the equator, and the earth has a bit of a bulge to it. Middle age. <laughs> so if you want to climb the mountain that is furthest from the center of the earth, you don't climb Mount Everest. You climb the mountain down in Ecuador. It's got a name that I can't pronounce. But if you want to climb the mountain that's tallest from its base to its summit, you don't climb the mountain in Ecuador, and you don't climb Mount Everest. You climb the mountain in Hawaii because its base to its summit is the highest. How is that the case? Most of the mountain is underwater. The top is above it. <laughs> but it's the tallest from its base. So which mountain? So this is the problem with comparison in the Christian life. This is what we do. Why climb Mount Everest? I, climbed, I walked up Table Rock. That's pretty big, that's pretty big for me. You know, that's a big deal. And we compare and we look and we say, oh, they don't go through the struggles I do and they aren't as spiritually disciplined as me. And 
And then it just drives us nuts, and comparison kills. There's no VIPs in the kingdom of heaven. There is Jesus and then everybody else. And he doesn't have to let anyone in. In fact, he shouldn't. He's just nice enough and kind enough and gracious enough to say, you can come in. The road we walk between here and glory is going to be different because he knows each of us exactly what we need. It will do you and the people around you no good. In fact, it will do great harm to fill yourself up with animosity, comparing yourself with others and say, why would God bless that Yahoo? Comparison kills in the body of Christ, and that's what John was doing here. Jesus says, don't stop them. Pray for them. Encourage them. If they're not for, against you, they're for you. The problem with Jesus, trusting him means we're going to follow him in his suffering. There's no VIP section in his kingdom. God, we thank you for the kindness and grace you have shown us in Jesus. God, we must admit readily that when we trusted you and have been walking with you, our hope was that that would mean it was the end of suffering, that that chapter was behind us. Now as we spend some time in your word, we discover suffering isn't an exception to the rule. Suffering and difficulty is the plan. God, in this moment, we would ask that you would give us strength and faith to endure to the very end. We pray, God, during times of great trial and hardship that you, by your spirit, would give us the ability to have joy in the Lord, even though things are difficult. And, and Father, even more so during times where suffering has long faded into the rearview mirror and we're experiencing times of peace and bounty and plenty, would you give us hearts by your Spirit that still recognize how much we need you? God, we would pray that even though our life with you doesn't always go the way we want it to, we would pray, God, that our hearts would trust you nonetheless. God, we also repent and confess of how we look around at others and compare ourselves and consider ourselves more righteous or closer to you or better than others around us. God, would you forgive us? We are grateful you died for sinners like us. God, I would pray for those who are here today who came in here and didn't have hope. And I would pray in this moment, knowing where you lead, the path you lead is a path through difficulty and suffering and finally in glory. I pray nonetheless they would say, that's the path of hope I want. And I pray even in this moment they would reach out to you for salvation. God, we thank you for your kindness and that you save sinners like us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand up as we close with a song?